Hello, welcome to another of our conversations in practical theology between Eric Stoddart and Zaida Zaidi. Uh, we're going to be talking today about the commodification of religion. Now, just in a nutshell, commodification is about putting products of human labour, things that we do, into systems of financial exchange. So we're thinking today about how are the things that we do in religion actually then put into sort of economic exchange, how we make money out of that, how they're commodified. Commercialise is another term, but it, it's that sort of area. Um, maybe I'll give you a couple of examples um, that I was thinking about this morning. I was scribbling down a few over my Alpen at the breakfast table. Uh, and for me, with, within Christianity, there's, there's a few different examples. One of them is people getting spiritual guidance or under the sort of banner of life coaching. And that's moved from being something that would happen within an exclusively um, religious context into actually being religious context where people are paying money for that. So there's a financial exchange going on with the spiritual guide. There's the whole thing in Christianity of pilgrimages now as tourism. So what used to be something that was done as an expression without necessarily being financially um, useful to other groups, of course they would have help in, in the, you would pay your way, but this now sort of pilgrimages tourism is another thing. Cathedrals charging people entry um, is another, I think, form of commodification. And... Um, there's a whole business in Christianity of what we call the prosperity gospel, where if you give enough money to God, but you're really giving to the church preacher, then you're going to get a blessing. And that, to me, is commodifying religion. So those are just a few of the examples that I've, as I say, just jotted down this morning. So I don't know how you react from a different faith perspective to what's happening in Christianity, and then I'd love to hear where there's commodification in, in your community. And I, I find the whole concept of commodification really interesting, and I'll give you an example. Um, a few years ago, we went to St. Paul's Cathedral, and you could go into the, the main kind of um, aspects of the cathedral um, for free. I think you had to pay to go to the Whispering Gallery. But other than that, you could access pretty much most of the cathedral as a visitor at no cost. Um, a couple of months ago, we were passing and I said to my kids, oh, let's just pop in. And we realised for the four of us to go in to St. Paul's Cathedral would have cost about £40. And it just kind of makes you think, actually. And, and, and here's the, the challenge that we face, because I think that... that um, Buildings, for example, like St. Paul's Cathedral, has become a tourist kind of um, venue, let's say, and people want to visit and travel for, for different things. But at the same time, where is the upkeep of that building coming from? So I think in the same way as with um, art galleries, that I understand why they would expect a donation but to say that there's a charge to go in automatically then alienates a number of people. Now, if you're going for a mass or a service, or clearly it's very, very different and you can just kind of go in at no cost. But I thought that was interesting. And then the other thing um, that I kind of became aware of recently as well is the Camino, you know, the, the kind of pilgrimage um, from Europe to, um, is it Santiago? 
and uh, it's it's really interesting. And there was a there was a program done on the BBC about that recently as well, and um, that's what drew my attention to it. And we were thinking, well, we could do that because it would be quite a nice walk. And then you realise that actually, like ninety percent of the people today who are doing the Camino are from a non-Christian background. And so they're doing it more for spiritual reasons rather than for religious reasons. And that has then had an impact on the tourist route. So there's become much more commercialization. So I suppose I'm, I'm in a bit of a dilemma where I think that um, some kind of uh, commercial aspects of religion are probably necessary in order for maintenance and things like this. But then, like you said, when you've got um, uh, kind of preachers charging for blessings, that can become an issue. And so I know every now and then I'll be walking somewhere and someone will just come up and they'll give me a card and it just says spiritual healer. Right. And it's, it's fascinating for me, these things, because you, you know that, that the spiritual healing is going to require a huge amount of financial investment. And you may not even get a result. And then actually, they may even just kind of like take you off on a complete tangent. Right? So you're wasting time and money and you're not even improving your relationship with God in any way, shape or form, maybe even diminishing it. And how, how do we then kind of um, um, respond to that? Um, and just, just kind of, I suppose, one more thing in the mix is um, what you were saying about um, so-called life coaches. Now, that's quite an interesting point because my work is as a coach. So I, I work as a business coach and as a high-performance coach. Now, the, the majority of the people that come to me for, for my work are from um, a Muslim background, but I will work with pretty much anyone who's kind of like, you know, at the level that they want to um, take some action. Um, does, it, does it then get seen that because I'm of the same faith as them, that I'm selling them religion? Or is it that I'm actually selling them and supporting them with a specific kind of um, intervention and uh, uh, kind of a training program, let's say, because it's all to do with how it's received. Yeah, I, I think it's how it's received and, and how it's communicated, because I, I, I think there's a big difference between someone who's doing professional life coaching, they're not setting themselves up as a religious, spiritual uh, director or a guide, they're offering what is genuinely and rightly so a product and therefore to earn money this is their labor now that's very different i think than if you're in a faith community where you're going to someone for spiritual help and guidance if you introduce a fee payment into that relationship there's something changes and that that's my problem within christianity yeah. <clears throat> where what's happening within the, the very clear, this is our faith community, we're going to help one another develop in our faith, there will be particular leaders who will help us that. We give 
to our religious community to support that, but we don't pay an hourly rate for, in my case, the priest giving me spiritual guidance. Yeah. If I spend an hour with him, I don't give him whatever an hourly rate would be. I would give to the church activity as a whole from which he is able to, to, to receive a living. And I think that's maybe the difference. Yeah, and, I, and, and just kind of, um, I suppose, expanding that even a wee bit further is that sometimes I've seen, um, and, and interestingly, even you know, people who I know to church, who go to church will relate something similar. The more that you donate to the cause, the more time you have with the spiritual kind of leaders. And so oh. are you then donating to charity or are you buying time? See, I, I really just detest that whole approach because yeah, it's a little bit of a tangent, but I, I was looking at a paper of, a, of with a, a guy who was writing about using customer data management software in congregations. And he was saying that you can use the proxies of um, zip code or postcode to identify someone's area and probably estimate their giving, well, their their, their salary. And therefore, you could target your pastoral care and your uh, fundraising in the church towards those who have got the most money to give. Now, that to me is a horrible, horrible thing to do Mm. because you're then basically saying if you've got more money, you'll get more pastoral care. Or you'll mm. get a bigger say in the church's decision making, mm. and that I, that just ugh, I hate the thought of that. Yeah, it's it's not very clean. I mean, it's interesting because if we look at um, let's say the the kind of salary of um, imams and scholars in the past from an Islamic perspective, those roles should always have been covered by the state. So. I'm, I'm not 100% sure about what happens in, let's say, predominantly Muslim countries, but I know in Saudi, for example, um, the imams of the main mosques in Mecca and Medina, I believe that their salary is paid for by the government, and they get compensated very well. Now, that then has a number of very positive ramifications, because it means that the scholars aren't then struggling to provide a roof over their um, over their heads and, and provide you know food on the table so they're not then in the position of kind of um, having to literally sacrifice their family for their role as a um, as a, a spiritual leader let's say but also it just then frees up so much of their time to be able to then support the community now what do we have within the UK, and I, can, I suppose I can only really talk about the UK and, and America to some degree, because that's what I know. The salaries of um, imams and kind of scholars is so low, it's literally bordering the minimum wage, and it's only on the minimum wage because that's now government law. Before then, it was just an absolute pittance. And so you've got families who are struggling because the the let's say the main breadwinner has decided to make a decision to have a, a role as a spiritual leader and i think that's completely inappropriate and from what i understand it's that's now something that's also um starting within christian and jewish communities where the faith leaders are just not receiving enough in terms of remuneration so where does all the money go and actually like if you're paying your um your imam or your scholar a decent salary, 
chances are they're going to be so much more committed to the role that they're doing and they won't not that I'm saying that they're not if they get paid pittance but it's just life is made so much easier because they can at least enjoy life rather than struggle yeah and the other side of that is I heard many many years ago an argument for paying these were actually Christian ministers you pay ministers as little as possible so that no one does it for the money and I thought this is that's there's something very perverted about that but you would never become um, a scholar or a, a priest or, you know, take on that role for the money. You know, the money is there, I think, in order for you to be able to not worry about, you know, where's the food going to come at the end of the week? You know? yeah, and, and I think that's one, certainly in Christianity, it's one of the big benefits of having denominations. Because if the denomination as a national group is somehow or other if not directly paying a salary or whatever it's called, mm. it takes the financial exchange element away from the immediate community that are receiving the pastoral care, the spiritual guidance, the preaching. Mm. And I think it just helps put an extra barrier because mm. if you have lots of independent congregations where the salary for the pastor is actually directly coming from the people that usually he, but may also be she, is directly serving, I think that introduces an element of commodification that's that's problematic. There's something about putting a barrier mm. in just between the people who are cared for and those who are caring for them at that financial level. It just helps keep away from this financial exchange thing. Mm. But I, it's interesting because I also think that there's something about the skill set that the scholars and the, the imams and the priests that, that they bring in. You know, it's not just about spiritual training. I mean, I saw a job description recently for an imam, and um, uh, someone said that if, if they could find somebody who met all of the criteria, then this person would be sought after by every single mosque in the land because they wanted somebody who would be more qualified than the kind of leading scholar from Al-Azhar University or more qualified than the imams of Mecca and Medina, you know, the two holiest cities in the world. It's just not good. And then they want them to even understand kind of like um, the, the tax law and some of the legal aspects of kind of like very, very localized law. That's just not going to happen. So, so, so in, in, in your community, there's nothing like a sort of football transfer market amongst imams, is there? Not really. I mean, I think the good ones are always going to be sought after, right? But actually, then there's a different question to be had about what makes or what qualifies um, a good imam. And so, for example, um, and maybe that's something that we should actually pick up, you know, what what makes a good spiritual leader for a congregation. Um, But kind of briefly, I would say you need to have the Islamic education, which costs money. You know, then you need to have an understanding of the secular context within which you live, which, again, maybe requires some education. And then you need to be able to do your job. You can't just kind of like import people and someone doesn't just kind of turn up ready made and say, yes, I've got the education. It's uh, even even, for example, doing your memorization of the Quran. It's a lifelong kind of um uh, journey that you go on the minute that you decide and I think I, I, I would struggle 
to think why anyone would want to do that for the money because of the amount of sacrifices that an individual has to make. Yeah, and you know, I'm look, thinking back, you know, over 20 years ago since I was a minister, and you, that same philosophy was was present that you, you couldn't just there wasn't a transfer market. You couldn't just bring somebody in. It had to be the right fit and they had to have all the skills and things like that. But even though all the congregations were technically equal, everybody knew there were more successful congregations. And despite whatever great spirituality somebody might have, there's still a little corner of, oh, it would be great to be the minister of that congregation because it's so successful. And there's a temptation there that, maybe just has to be named and resisted um, that there are people who will choose to go to a very small struggling congregation and that's their calling from God. And there are others who will choose to respond to their request from a successful congregation. And I'm not going to question their calling from God, but there can be a temptation when everything around about us is seeped in success language to want mm. to go to the successful places. Yeah. I mean, I, I suppose that's, that's quite a difficult concept for me to understand because I, I don't know of any mosque in the UK that isn't struggling in some way financially, you know, and um, it's, and they heavily rely on their congregation. I mean, even our local mosque has had a debt of about, I think it was a few million beforehand. And now they're on about 300,000 um, in debt. So the maintenance is ongoing, but, that debt is there until it gets paid off. And it's, uh, and that's in a reasonably kind of, um, not well, yeah, I suppose it is a reasonably wealthy area in London, you know? So, but I think that's actually a good thing because it makes, as a, um, a member of the congregation, it makes me more committed to my local mosque than to one of the fancier ones that one could go to, let's say. Now, that was a question I was going to ask you. It struck me about there's a practice among some folks in Christianity that they'll church hop mm. and they'll, they'll, they'll switch from, they'll find a congregation that best suits them, which I think is a little bit like commodification. It's finding what is the product that I want to get. Are you obliged to go to your local mosque or can you basically choose any? That's a great question, actually. So, um, I I probably am a victim of that commodification then because I am very selective about the mosques that I will go to. You know, there are places that I have been to where I've had a very bad experience and I've just thought, okay, so if you're going to behave like that, I really don't want to engage with you. There was also one place that was um, uh, fundraising for money to expand the mosque and I asked them about provision for women and they said oh yeah we've got coffee morning on a Tuesday and I thought fantastic you won't be getting a penny of my money you know so I'm I'm I am selective about where I will go but that's because I want my dare I call it experience at the mosque to support my relationship with God I don't want it I don't want to go to a mosque or to um uh, hear um, a scholar speaking and feel kind of anything negative towards Islam as a result of it. And if I start to think like that, then for me, it's fine. It's, they're just not my teacher. They can be somebody else's, but it's not good for me. And how does a mosque actually raise its 
it's money. Uh, I'm thinking, certainly my brand of Christianity is very coy about directly asking for money. Uh, we, we sort of put that into leaflets. We maybe once a year, the preacher will encourage folks to give financially. But we're sort of, I think, a bit embarrassed about money. And maybe it's a reaction against commodification. Maybe it's just a very Scottish thing or a British thing. We just don't like talking about money. How, how does it work in a, in a mosque? Hmm. I, I mean, I think, so, for example, after Friday prayers, there's always the collection. And um, when, I, when I think about that, I think of it in the same way as my um, mother-in-law describes the collection that takes place in her church. You know, there's always something that goes round and you donate. But what was interesting is that I know people who go to church and they'll say, you need to um, kind of like have the shiniest, crispiest £20 note that goes into the thing because other people are looking at what you're donating, which really, like, it, it's just, it's interesting, isn't it? How, you, are you feeling pressurised to donate or, or to contribute? Or are you doing it because this is you genuinely giving for, you know, the sake of your church or your mosque or whatever? So, um, yeah. so, so when when that bag goes around for the for your offering, how I'm assuming that you will be giving maybe by direct debit as well and getting tax relief uh, through charitable status. So you're giving me actually be administrated electronically and many people will just pass pass the bag around is that what happens in the mosque or well it's, a, it's an interesting point because i think that some people probably do do that and um like you know we're coming up to the month of ramadan and um i think they there was some statistic last year that said that um muslims are they donate kind of i think they're the biggest faith group that donates to charity within the uk at the moment and so it was a very big thing when Islamic Relief became one of the 10 um, de- disasters, um, what do they call it, the DEC charities that the government has. So they actually formed a strategic relationship with the government in terms of um, disasters, emergency relief, that's it. Um, so that was a big thing. But I think in Ramadan, there will be millions that are donated. I mean, I've heard stories of um, people literally even donating a million because from um, the kind of charity perspective, as a Muslim, you donate 2.5% of your um, kind of savings, let's say, after you've met a certain amount. So if you have, a, I think it's about £500 in the bank, then anything over that, you donate 2.5%, or including the 500 Um But then there's another form of charity, which is called sadaqah. And sadaqah is kind of like just general charity that you can give. So, um, and and it's interesting because that has a financial and a non-financial aspect. So um, smiling is a form of charity. And so um, I remember when we got back to the UK after traveling, so my kids had got into the habit of always giving some money to anybody homeless that they would see or anybody in need that they would see. Come back to the UK they get their pocket money. It's gone in a day. I'm like, what are you doing? It's like, oh, yeah, we're giving one pound and two pounds to every single homeless person they're seeing. So I had to explain to them that, one, it will make you broke. Two, not everybody is genuine. And three, you can also give charity in other forms. You know, so one of the things that I'm playing with at the moment, actually, is time as a form of charity. 
So do we then give time? Because actually it's probably more valuable to the organization than just a few pounds of money. And so is, has the kind of commodification of religion just meant that everything is focused around pounds and pence? That that's interesting because yeah, yeah there, there's a long Christian tradition as well of of different forms of of giving giving to people that are not simply financial, and it's probably only more recently that it's been so heavily focused around actual cash transfer, and I, I think you're right that there's something about when life is so expensive that to to just get by in life. You you have to buy things. People have to have money of some form or another. And we're not in an agricultural context anymore where people can just exchange food uh, or just give food, not even exchange it, with one another in a small village. We're in big urban settings and there's something very different about our social relationships now. But, yeah, it give, giving time, giving energy... Um, and I wonder if the issue in commodification is that we're giving in order to somehow get back. That's a commodification problem. Whereas if we simply give with no expectation of getting anything back, that's gift. That's, that's different, I think. Mm. I mean, you're absolutely right. But it's interesting because in Islam, if you give, it's an investment in God in some ways, right? Because what you're doing is you're giving and they, they, um, the scholars teach us that anything that you give is um, God will repay you that. It's, it's, it's as if you're actually giving a loan to God and that you will get the kind of um, the, the response to the loan either in this life or in the next one. So it's not, it's kind of like, I don't even know if there is a word to describe it. It's kind of like a donation, but not a donation. It's you just kind of like making an investment of some sort. And, um, and then you're right. The question then is, are you doing it completely selflessly or are you doing it in response for a return? Because it's, it's always more attractive to um, give for, uh, you know, sponsoring orphans or giving so that people can build a, a water well or something like this than it is actually to sponsor a room in a hostel for someone to live, to sleep in overnight. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, and, 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 and then how much, this is a horrible thing to say, but how much are the charities then to blame for the way that they have kind of come in and said, um, and they milk the stories around um, charity giving as a whole. You know? There is also another point that's coming to my mind, which is quite controversial in terms of the whole um, um, kind of refugee issue. And so I was at a conference last year, and I have to say I was quite horrified in that um, support was being given to refugees in Muslim countries by churches. Um, and the, I'm talking about Muslim refugees were getting strategic support. So in the same way that you were talking about the postcodes earlier, they were targeting them with a view. They wouldn't say this, 
but I can only tell you how I received it, with a, a view that they would support them and then these people slowly, slowly would then adopt the faith of the church that was supporting them. And, and you just kind of think, well, you know, of course, if someone is in such dire need that they have no help, they need support with their immigration status, and somebody comes along of a different faith and says, we'll help you get everything that you need. Of course, in the end, you're going to really question, what is my faith? See, that's been such a centuries-old problem within Christian mission of giving with a view to conversion yeah. and try to change people by, some would say, manipulating their need and their desperate situation. And I, I just can't see that that is in any way really what the Christian gospel is, is talking about. Um, but it's, it is the real challenge of actually giving a gift mm. because that practice of targeting particular Muslim refugees in the hope that they will then gradually make a choice to become Christian, to me, that doesn't sound like a gift. That's, no. that's, that's something else. That, that's getting perilously close if it isn't actually into systems of exchange and commodification and stuff. Um, but it's very difficult to get away from the idea of gift because if we have a faith that says if we, if we, if we are someone who gifts, genuinely gifts, we, we will receive a blessing. And there's lots in the, the, the Old Testament Hebrew Bible about receiving blessing for being someone who gives uh, to others. And I have a problem with that because to give with a view to getting a blessing, is that really a gift? But then can we ever make an altruistic, totally altruistic gift to someone? Is there not always something at the back of our mind? I'm going to feel better, so I'm going to gain something by the feeling of doing that. Do we just have to bite the bullet and just give? So maybe there's something here then about giving versus guilt. Mm -hmm. So if you, if you don't give, and, and actually there's even something in Islam that says that the, the best of the charity is where your right hand gives so your left hand doesn't even know. Mm -hmm. So it's just completely hidden. Right? Now, you, you do that as a gift, right? let's say. If you don't do that, do you then feel guilty about not having given, even though that you have the resources. So I think as humans, there is never going to be a situation where we can 100% give without receiving something. Because even if we're appeasing our own guilt, we're still receiving something. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. But... If, if we waited long enough to have an absolutely pure gift, we'd never give anything. No. And, and we could be over-scrupulous about our um, spiritual intentions and try and get into some sort of state of spiritual purity that we're genuinely giving gifts. And then all needy people would just go past us and we'd be accumulating more and more wealth because well, we would never be able to give in an absolutely pure form. Mm. 
and but here's yeah. the interesting thing right so let's let's move it away from giving in terms of money but giving in terms of the little actions like smiling or saying a prayer i think those are done completely selflessly you know so if i see somebody in the street and i've nothing to give them and i say a prayer for them actually i I don't think I'm really gaining anything. Uh, well, maybe I am. It's interesting to speak about this because I'm gaining the fact that I feel as if I've helped somebody. But as a Muslim, I believe that that prayer will be answered in some way, shape or form. And if I didn't say that prayer for that person, then I'm losing out on a gift that I can also receive. So I remember once, uh, I'll, I'll tell you the story briefly. I remember once... I went into um, the local Waitrose to get myself a coffee and a croissant and there was someone literally sitting on the floor and it was 7am or something and I walked in and then the thought came to my mind, I need to go back out and ask them if they'd like anything because who am I to have breakfast and not buy for this person? So I went back out and I asked him what he wanted and I thought if I was was in that situation – how would I want to be treated? So I even went to the point and said, do you want sugar with your latte? You know? And when I came out and I gave him his drink and his um, croissant, the guy said, God bless you. And I just thought, you know, isn't it really interesting that here I am thinking I've done him a favor, but actually he's given me an even bigger favor by saying those simple words, God bless you. Because we don't know whose prayer get an- gets answered. No, that's right. And for those of us that are prone to overthink things, it gets a spiral of, you know, am I doing this for X reason or Y reason? Or is this person a fraudster? Are they genuine? And the overthinking can become paralyzing in this sort of realm. But sometimes we maybe just have to risk giving a gift. Absolutely. And not give so much so that you then put yourself into a situation of extreme discomfort. I think sometimes a little bit of um, uh, pushing yourself financially is not necessarily a problem if it helps somebody else out. But don't give to the point where you go broke. But absolutely, just just if you give with the right intention. And I think that's that's one of the challenges as well that we're facing in the world right now with um kind of giving to churches and to charities and things is that I actually do not know where the money goes. So someone can say to me that they have a hundred percent donation policy, which means that they take a hundred percent of the 10 pounds that I give, for example, and it goes to that particular cause and the charity is funded by gift aid, etc. But how, how can I trust that? I can't. How do I know where the money that I give to the mosque goes, where the money that you give to the church goes? We don't know. So there's a huge element of trust as we're giving it. But I don't think that us not knowing should mean that we stop doing it unless there is a very kind of like obvious and open um, information that's out there that says don't support this particular project because they are, um, you know, they have issues or something like that. And there was a very, big famous kind of global charity that faced that recently and they said that um as a result of the bad press i think their charity donation went down by about 15 percent 
Yeah, it's, I think what's coming through to me in our conversation this morning is that we can't separate off spirituality and giving and money and trust and we're all woven into a society where finance and money and it, it, it's so much part of how we relate to people that it shapes who we are and somehow finding in our faith traditions ways of stepping out of that financial framework where everything is about commodification and exchange. Maybe that's where our respective faith can help us just to see a little bit differently, but we're still entangled in it. Hmm. Uh, I think some of it comes back to, um, in some ways, a solution, for example, would be if the salaries of the mosques and the funding of the mosques was covered by a central organisation. But you know that as soon as I say that, that people will then not trust that central organisation because it would either not cover their particular um, very kind of slender branch of the faith or because they don't like somebody. Or So th- what is the solution? And I can't think of one. I mean, I, I, I think the way that the, the church is organised is great in terms of having um, hierarchy and to some degree having salary scales and all of that. But even then, that doesn't seem to be working effectively. I don't know what the solution is. No, and as usual with our conversations, the solutions are not readily apparent, and that—that's, as you know, that's that—that's not what we're we're trying to do. But mm. I think certainly trying to understand the hold that money and exchange has on us, and maybe then whatever bureaucratic systems are organised, if we're all conscious of how how we're shaped by financial issues and a world of financial exchange, maybe that's the best that we can do to mm. be aware of how we're being shaped all the time in our, in our faith communities by the wider economic structure. Mm. And maybe kind of also going back to what did the prophets do? How, how was money seen? by them you know and so you know just looking at the examples of of jesus and muhammad's blessings upon them like for them money was just a tool it wasn't really anything other than that you know and they kind of still carried on living their amazing lives in the way that they did and if they are the examples for us then perhaps we should shift our focus on money and commodity and and you know the building has to have this kind of tiles and the priest needs to wear this kind of clothes and just kind of think actually what is the job that needs to get done and focusing on that as ever huge huge issues um again i've greatly enjoyed our conversation i'm just conscious of the time and to just to say to folks who are, who are watching and for listening thank you for listening uh this has been eric stoddart uh, hope you'll comment uh, below and uh, we'd be delighted for you to listen and view into our next conversation. Thank you.